Our verse that we look at every, every class period is, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. It's a verse that I pray pretty much every time I open the Word of God. And our young people know it by heart because we see it every day. And we talked about the value of interpretation. You'll remember that. Observation is what do I see, but interpretation is what does it mean. And uh, there's always only one interpretation. There can't be more than one. You can be, have several applications, but there can only be one interpretation. So what is interpretation? It's correctly understanding what a passage is saying. Objective fact, not subjective feeling. Remember, exegesis is reading out of a passage. That's what a passage means. And then eisegesis is reading into a passage. That's when you say what a passage means to you. That's a dangerous, dangerous position to take, what, what the Bible means to me. It's fine if it happens to match up with what the Bible actually means. But what ends up happening is people read into the Bible and they, uh, they try to find something that isn't there. They're trying to find something to satisfy their feeling instead of answer a fact. And they end up misinterpreting the Word of God. So we don't want that. You Remember we talked about what affects interpretation. Language barriers can do that. Cultural barriers, literary barriers, communication barriers. And we gave examples for all of those. Then we went into the section called Handle with Care, the things that you want to avoid, hazards that you want to avoid when, uh, when studying the Word of God. First of all, don't misread the text. Now, that's pretty innocent, but it's easy to do, isn't it? And the two examples we gave is you know, when we said money is the root of all evil. Well, that's, the only problem with that is that's not what the Bible says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Um, don't misread it. Then, of course, in, uh, in John chapter... Um, Chapter 8, people often say, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, except Jesus said it'll make you free, which is much, much better. And so you want to be careful about that. Usually it's an honest mistake. Um, Worse yet, though, is distorting the text. This is more serious, and it usually is the result of an agenda. And we, you know, we tend to think of like, you know, cults doing this, but well-meaning Christians can do it too. If you've been brought up in a certain tradition, and your whole life you've been accustomed to that, and you try to read the Bible in a skewed way to fit your tradition, that's distorting the text. Tradition's fine as long as it lines up with the Word of God. But if it doesn't, you've got to chuck the tradition and stick with the Word. You know. Then we talked about contradicting the text. Contradicting the text. This is sinister because it calls God a liar. And, of course, we see Genesis 3, 1 through 4, when Satan said, Yea, hath God said? Matthew 7, people saying, well, that means we shouldn't judge. No, that's not at all what it says. It's actually the opposite. We should judge, but there's a right and a wrong way to do it. We said to watch out for subjectivism. This subjects the the subscriptures to your feelings. Um, Watch out for relativism. This believes biblical truth is relative to the circumstances. I got news for you, friend. It's not. Truth is truth. Right is right. Wrong is wrong, no matter what the circumstances may be. And maybe the most common thing that we as Bible-believing Christians need to watch out for is overconfidence. That's when we think we know all there is to know about a passage. Don't ever get there. Don't ever get there, okay? Tonight we go into, man, that's going to bother me all service. It really is. We've got to figure out why that computer up there doesn't talk to the other computers. They're having some kind of a snit. Something's going on there. That computer's in disagreement with every other computer in this building, and I've got to figure out why because it really bothers me that I have to bring them together constantly. Anyway, so I'm sorry for half the word missing. Uh, what type of literature is this? I know when you heard that title last week, it got really exciting when you thought about, oh, man, I love literature, and especially Uh, especially in this kind of a setting. It's my hope and prayer that this will be something exciting and helpful for you. I want you to look at Psalm 119.34. This is the key verse that we're using for interpretation. If I want to rightly divide the word of truth, this is the end goal of of right interpretation. Psalm 119.34. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Why is it so important that we correctly interpret Scripture so we know how best to obey God? It comes down to that. I want to obey God completely, fully, without any kind of, any kind of problem there. And the only way I can hope to do that is by rightly dividing His Word and interpreting it correctly. 
if I don't if I don't rightly interpret his instructions, how can I keep them? How can I keep them? So let's pray and ask God's help. Lord, would you help us tonight as we study this next section of this book? Lord, help me to be useful and helpful in my teaching. And uh, God, I pray that these uh, these slides won't be too much of a distraction. Help me to remember next time to make the changes that I need to, so it's not like that, Lord. Uh, Lord, would you just speak to our hearts and help us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read something to you that C.S. Lewis wrote in the preface to Paradise Lost. Are you familiar with Paradise Lost? It was the the great work by John Milton about the the creation and fall of man. And C.S. Lewis wrote this at the beginning. He said, The first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is, what it was intended to do, and how it was meant to be used. Let's repeat that. To know what it is, what it's intended to do, and how it was meant to be used. Okay. After that has been discovered, the temperance performer, that's the person who was against the alcohol, may decide that the corkscrew was made for a bad purpose. And the communist, who of course was an atheist, may think the same about the cathedral. But such questions come later. The first thing is to understand the object before you as long as, I'm sorry, the object before you, there's a colon there. As long as you think the corkscrew was meant for opening tins or the cathedral for entertaining tourists, you can say nothing to the purpose about them. So what you're saying is if you don't understand what something is and how it's to be used, you can't make any commentary on its purpose or how to apply it or how to interpret it. Okay. And this is what he says about Paradise Lost. The first thing the reader needs to know about Paradise Lost is what Milton meant it to be. Could we not say the same thing about God's Word? Before ever launching into a study of a book of the Bible, the first thing that the careful Bible student needs to know is what the book's author intended it to be. The Bible is a book that is made up of multiple what we're going to call genres. You know what a genre is? Hey, there's that verse again. Oh, no, there we go. A genre is a style that characterizes a group of compositions. Now, what does that have to do with my Bible study? Okay, let's use a different analogy. How about music? A different, is music in different genres? Absolutely. Right now, there's a ramping up in Christmas music. But even within Christmas music, are there sub-genres in Christmas music? There's a big difference between the Mormon Tabernacle Choir singing, O Come All You Faithful, and Bing Crosby singing, Melakalikimaka is the thing to say on a bright Hawaiian Christmas day. I mean, there's a big difference between those two offerings. And Rudolph comes somewhere in the middle, I guess. But uh, anyway, um, let's think about classical music. Well, that's, that's, that's just one genre, right? Well, unless you just want to start breaking it down. What about the symphony? What about chamber music? What about lullabies? What about Baroque? Oh, well, well, gospel music, that's its own genre, unless you divide it into southern gospel, quartet music, bluegrass, choir, contemporary. There's genres of everything. And the more you understand about a musical genre, the more you appreciate what goes into that type of music. I am by no stretch of the imagination a good guitarist, but I play it enough to know how difficult it is that some of these guys do on a guitar. The more you understand about a genre, about music in in this case, you know more about the skill level and difficulty in composition. And the more that you understand about a biblical literary genre, the more you'll appreciate that segment of Scripture and minimize the risk of a wrong interpretation. What am I trying to say? If you care what kind of Scripture you're reading, it's going to make you study it better. Okay, so let's get into that. Let's, Let's see what we're talking about. There are six major biblical literary genres, and it's my hope that in giving these six to you that it'll also be evident why it's important, okay? The first is exposition. Exposition. Exposition is a straightforward argument or explanation of a body of objective truth, and it appeals primarily to the mind. It has a tight structure, 
It moves from point to point in logical fashion. It uses connective words like but, and, for, and therefore. Just in what we've talked about already, can you think of maybe a section of Scripture that really fit, fits this bill? My mind goes to the Pauline epistles. What's he doing? It's a straightforward argument or explanation of a body of objective truth. When I think of books that have a tight structure that move from point to point, that use logic, and even argue in, in such a way like you would in a court of law, trying to bring people to a conclusion, the two books that come to mind, well, three. I think of Romans, I think of Galatians, and I think of Hebrews. Two of the three certainly Pauline epistles, all three certainly in my mind, but anyhow... Okay. When you, when you read an expositional part of Scripture, pay close attention to its structure and close attention to its terms. Second genre. We move from exposition to narrative, or you could say biography. We'll use narrative because it's a broader term. These are stories, and when you use the word stories, that doesn't mean they're fables. It doesn't mean they're false. They're absolutely true, but they're a narrative. They're a story. They contain a plot and characterization and scenarios that are true to life. Good examples would be the Gospels, particularly Luke, and then its sequel, the book of Acts. It's a story. It's a running narrative. Narratives have important Parts. Let me know if I'm moving too fast. My students in school have no problem letting me know when I'm moving too fast. It's when they're four slides behind that I'm like, okay, y'all are messing with me. But important facets of a narrative. First of all, there needs to be a plot. There needs to be a plot. What's a plot? That, that's a, a movement in a story. It's what's happening. Why is it happening? Where is it happening? When is it happening? Uh, again, in this time of year, there is an uptick in what are called Hallmark Christmas movies. Hallmark Christmas movies are famous for all having the same plot. Okay? Some lady from the country has moved to the city made a big life for herself. She's come back home to the country for Christmas. She's separated from her highfalutin boyfriend in the city and runs into her old boyfriend from the country. He's usually wearing flannel. And then there's this big, what do I do? What do I do? She ends up going to the guy in flannel and the guy in the city can just, you know, whatever. And, and sometimes there's, sometimes they throw in as an extra twist, you know, if you don't pay this loan in time, the bank's going to foreclose on mom's farm. You know, this, this is the standard format for Hallmark movies, and my wife watches every one of them. Honey, you know how they're going to turn out. I know, but I love them. It's a plot. Now, on the other side of that, every once in a while you run across something that you, you, you know, maybe you watch a movie or watch a television show, and after the end you don't have any idea what happened. There was no plot. There was no plot. It's interesting. I don't think this is so much true anymore, but when, when I was growing up, a lot of ladies who were stay-at-home moms spent a lot of time, my grandmother on my dad's side, it was understood from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock, you leave her alone because she was watching her stories. I remember days of our lives and around the world. I could, I could have cut my arm off and be bleeding. She's not moving from that chair. She's watching her stories. Okay. And men, we kind of laugh at that. That's so silly. But men have stories, too, that's called professional wrestling. There's a plot line there. You know, What's going to happen? Is Hulk Hogan going to win the title back? You know, and you've got to tune in next week. Okay. There's a plot. What are some good examples of a plot in the Bible? Well, the wilderness wanderings. Is it not a, a story that, that, that has highs and lows and, and uh, you know, what's happening, why, where, and when? I tell you, if, if, you're wanting, if you're wanting one section of Scripture that really has an exciting plot, I'd say the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, man. Even if Jonah wasn't inspired, Jonah would be great literature. The only knock that anybody ever has on Jonah is we don't know how it ended. 
We assume we know how it ended, but it kind of, you know, right there. All right. Another great facet of, of a narrative is not just the plot, but characterization. It needs to have characters. Think about the books that you've read. The greatest books have the greatest characters. You know, um, when I read, when I read uh, outside of scripture and outside of scriptural things like you know commentaries and things like that, when I'm just reading for leisure, um, I, I read one of two things. I either read biographies. I like biographies. Or I read a very specific type of what's called historical fiction. There's a guy named Jeff Schrah. His dad was the one that wrote the book upon which the, the movie Gettysburg was, was based. He's very accurate, and he kind of fills in the blanks and adds some things to personalities. I really enjoy those books. And it used to just be the Civil War that he covered. Then he covered the Revolutionary War. Then he covered the War of 1812. Then he covered the World War I, then World War II, then the Korean War. I expect Vietnam will be next. Um, I love reading his books, and I've got just about all of them. Um, the characters, the way he, you know, the way he treats Patton, the way he treats Stonewall Jackson, the way he treats George Washington, the way he treats Benedict Arnold. I mean, all of it's just fascinating to me. Great characters. Well, you look at these scriptural things. Who's in the cast of characters? How are they presented? What roles do they play? What decisions do they make? How do they relate to each other, and how do they relate to God? Here's a great example of that. How about Jacob and Esau? How do they relate to each other? And more than that, how do they relate to God? One ends up with God, the other ends up walking away from him. See, Does this character progress, or do they regress? A great example of that is Peter. Sometimes he's moving forward, sometimes he's moving backward. See, Do they fail? And if they fail, why? Again, Peter, great example. Why are they in this story? What's their purpose? Have you ever read something in Scripture, particularly maybe in the Gospels or Acts, and somebody just seems to drop in there for no good reason? Oh, there is a reason. There is a reason. Think about the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. Jesus is on his way to raise a girl from the dead, and it's like God just drops her into the middle of that scenario. Why was she there? That's for another time. Does these, do these characters, are they individual? Are they representative or both? Now, what in the world does that mean? How about Isaac and Ishmael? Were they individuals? Yes. Are they representative of something bigger? Yes. Go to Galatians and find out that Isaac and, Jacob, Isaac and Esau are representative of the grace and the law, not Esau, Ishmael. Grace and the law, respectively. Okay, so they're both. All right. When we see a character, do we like them or do we dislike them? Or both? Can I give you an example? How about Joseph? Now, I get that Joseph is a type of Christ, but can I be candid with you? There's certain elements of Joseph that if I were there, I'd have probably gotten a little ill at him too. If I'm his older brother and he comes to me, hey, guess what? I had a dream that you're going to bow down to me. Say what? Joseph, you maybe should have rethought with how you announced that. You know. So there's the moments I'm like, I don't know if I like Joseph that much. But then there's other times I'm like, man, I really like Joseph as he grew and as he matured and God uh, used him. Here's one. When it comes to the characters, what would we do if we were in their place? To me, the best way to look at this one is Adam and Eve. What would we have done if we'd have been in the garden? Can I give you the spoiler? The exact same, they did, exact same thing they did. We'd have all made the same mistake. All of us. So when you're looking at a narrative or biography, you're looking at plot, you're looking at characterization, and then you're looking at think, whether or not things are true to life. I love this statement. Scripture shows us life as God wants us to see it. What better way could there be to see life than the way God wants us to see it? 
If you're reading a passage, what questions does this story raise? What problems are encountered? What lessons are learned or are lessons learned? Are there things we should be sure to avoid? How do they deal? How do these people deal with the unavoidable? What do they discover about God? Okay, so we've got exposition. We've got narrative or biography. Now, how about parables? A parable is a tale that's illustrating a moral principle, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, we think about examples of parables. Okay, take your pick. Go through the Gospels. Take your pick. I think the one we go to the first is the sower in the soils. That's a great example of a parable. But what about 2 Samuel chapter 12? What about when Nathan the prophet came to David and he was about to tell David the great sin that he had committed with Bathsheba against her and against Uriah? What did he start off with? A parable about a man who had a little ewe lamb and somebody who had all the sheep in the world took that one ewe lamb and slaughtered it. And David was mad. The parable worked. See, the parable worked. So we've got exposition. We've got narrative or biography. We've got parables. How about poetry? Poetry. Now remember, poetry doesn't have to rhyme. Okay? There's plenty of other ways to have poetry. In fact, it's, it's any scripture that makes use of meter, parallelism, hyperbole. It's one of my favorite words. I love hyperbole. Hyperbole is exaggeration. You know? Like when you say, uh, man, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. You may be hungry, but I doubt very seriously that you could eat an entire horse or would eat an entire horse. That's hyperbole. Okay. So can you have poetry within a passage that's not poetic? Sure. Sure you can. How about songs? How about the song of Moses? How about the song of, of, of Barak and, uh, and uh, uh, Deborah? This is poetry, and a great example, obviously, of that is the Psalms. Okay. Now, this I like. I, I, I want to spend a little time on this. Wisdom literature. These are insights that are shared from a wisened, wisened or more experienced life to a younger or less experienced one. Notice I didn't say an older, more... Is it possible to be older and not wise? Can I say this with all due respect? We have a president in the Oval Office who is an older man and is not wise. He's not. Is he experienced in some areas? Yeah. But is he wise? So can you have, can you have someone who maybe is even younger project wisdom to somebody who is older? Yeah. Now, that younger person, if they're truly wise, they won't see it that way. Wisdom's one of those things that's kind of like humility. If you think you have it, you don't. You know, I'm so wise. Eh, not so much. I'm so humble. Maybe not, you know. Um, so this isn't an age thing. Uh, this is a, a submissive to the Word of God thing. good example, of course, is Proverbs. Then we've got prophecy or apocalyptic literature. We had a quiz on this today in our Bible class, and one of our students, this was, this was left blank, and they could have put prophecy, and they put a, could have put apocalyptic, but instead they put revelation literature. Here's the problem. They're right. Because what's the Greek word for a revelation? Apocalypto. So I'm up there. They've all finished their quiz. I'm grading their quizzes. I said, all right, let's let you all decide what I do with this. I'm not going to say who it is, but you have the power to help or hurt this person. All right. If somebody puts an answer that is not the correct answer but is a legitimate definition of the answer, would you give them the points? Of course, all of them thinking it's them, but, well, yeah, absolutely. You know, they're all unanimous in that. And this kid, this kid was able to actually get 100 because I went ahead and gave it to him. 
the word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypto, apocalypse. But here's the thing. It's not just limited to future events. Prophetic and apocalyptic um, literature doesn't just mean future events. It's any type of use of tones of warning or judgment. So you see a lot of that in the prophets, even outside of what we would call prophecy proper. But a good example we're going to use is Revelation. That's a good example of that. Now, five keys to interpretation. I hope you're not bored stiff yet. I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to walk that line of conversational but not too academic, you know. The five keys to interpretation. If you want to accurately and adequately, man, I just had my life flash before my eyes. My next page wasn't there. I don't know they got. I bet somebody snuck up and switched them around on me just to mess with my head. Five keys to interpretation. All right, let's start. Number one, content. Content. Next is context. The next is comparison. The next is culture. The last one is consultation. All right, let's start with content. You cannot separate content and meaning. Content determines meaning. What's in a passage determines its identity. Give an example. If I tell you that I have a bowl here, and I'm putting in this bowl in the right proportions, I'm putting some flour, some milk, some eggs, some sugar. What what do you think I'm making? A cake. Now, because what goes into something determines its identity. Hey, that's a good lesson for Christians. What goes in something? Makes it what it is. What you're putting into your heart leads to who you are. You know. Well, I could say I'm making a cake, but if you see me put in, you know, yogurt, salt, Dr. Pepper, cheese, that may make something, but I'm not making a cake. It's amazing to me how many people want to identify a passage without taking the time to really see what's in it. Content matters. Okay. Now remember, how do we determine content? That was the whole first section of this was observation. You determine content by observation. And what, what do we, how do we observe? We observe observation using terms, structure, Literary forms, man, that looks terrible. Um, Questions, things that are emphasized, repeated, related, alike, unalike, true to life. We covered all that earlier. Content, look to see what's in there or what's not in there. Next, context. Context. What is context? That which goes before and that which follows after. That says content up there. It should say context. Man, I'm so ashamed. Context. That's what goes before and that which follows after. There's five basic categories of context. You've got literary context, historical context, cultural context, geographic context, and theological context. I'm not going to get into that as much tonight as I did with our young people. Uh, We'll kind of circle back around to that as we study other things. But that's the five basic categories of context. Now, we're going to spend a little time on the next one. And I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to several places. Um, The next section is comparison. I want to introduce you to two of my best friends when it comes to study. Two of my best friends. This 
is a strong, exhaustive concordance of the Bible. I think that every Christian who can read should have one of these, at least one in their home. Okay. I love this resource. Now, admittedly, I haven't picked up a Strong's book in a long, long time because I have it in my computer program, and it's much quicker and much, and that's fine. That's fine. But if you're the type of person that you'd rather have it on the shelf, and I am that person, you'd rather have it on the shelf and not mess with a laptop or an iPad or whatever. And, and by the way, you can get, there's a free program. There's, there's a lot of good ones out there. A lot of people use Blue Letter Bible, and some people use Logos. I have Logos. It's just too beefy for me. But I use something called eSword. eSword is free. They do ask you to donate, but you don't have to. eSword is free, and it's got all kinds of free resources on it, one of which is a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. I'm going to show you what I do with this here in a minute. The other one is lesser known, and this one I don't have on computer. I use this. I open the book like an old-fashioned person. This is the Greek-English Concordance to the New Testament by a guy named J.B. Smith. I was introduced to this in college by one of my professors, and I have four copies of it. I have one here. I have one at the office. I may have one at home. I guess three copies because I gave one away. That's why I have so many copies. I give these things away. I found the one book that Scott Pauley has never heard of that I have, and I gave him one. So I have that on Scott Pauley for the rest of my life. Okay, But anyway, I love this book. This resource is tremendous. In just a minute, I'm going to show you how to use it. Um, this is a, a used copy. I got this for like four bucks. Okay, it's not a big investment. And uh, these, you can find these at thrift stores for a dollar, you know. Or you can just get the free program. So those are, I just introduced you to my two friends. I'm going to show you how to use them here in a minute if you don't already know. Did you know that this particular section... You can understand that something like this with a bunch of teenagers can kind of have lulls, and they're, you know, sometimes it's a little too academic, and they fall into that same malaise that they have in chemistry and physics and literature and things like that. This particular section, they ate up. At least they appeared to. We went to the school library. We pulled all these books down. I showed them how to use it, and they were just into it. You know, they were just into it, and I hope you feel the same way. Comparison. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote, among other things, a tremendous commentary on Romans. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this. He said, you rarely have to go outside the Bible to explain anything in the Bible. What's he mean by that? Scripture is its own best commentary. There's a place for other commentaries, but don't you dare go to them until you have searched the Scriptures first. Scripture is its own best commentary. Would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with me? Ephesians chapter 4. We're going we're gonna to work through something that I think is going to, at least I find it's neat. I like it. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11. Well, you can't see it down there, but that's down there about at the exit sign. Ephesians chapter 4 verse number 11. And he, meaning God, Christ, gave some apostles, talking about to the local church, and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Verse 12 again, for the perfecting of the saints. And I'm studying that passage, and I say, what does that mean for the perfecting of the saints? Does it mean to get the saints to a point that they're sinless? That's not going to happen until we're in heaven. So what does it mean? Well, so what I do is I get out my Strong's Concordance, and I look up the word perfecting. Okay? I look up the word perfecting. Interesting. There's a flower. That's what happens when you buy a used books. You never, you never know what you're going to I haven't found the ones full of money yet, but 
Okay, so I find the word perfecting. And I see that perfecting is used twice in the Bible. It's used 2 Corinthians 7, 1, and it's used in Ephesians 4, 12. Now, next to that reference, Ephesians 4, 12, is a number, 2677. So then I go back to the Greek portion, because the New Testament was written in Greek, and I look up 2677. And I find out that 2677, wow, it's small, okay, yields that Greek word, if you want to write it down. Okay, 2677. All right. And that's a carcatismos, or I'm sorry, cut cut our. Katartismos. Katartismos. Well, they got the accent on the O, and I just don't believe it. Anyway, um, and it means complete furnishing. It means complete furnishing. So I could be satisfied with that. Okay, completely furnished. That's what that word means, completely furnished. Good. Okay, so I go back and I read it again for the complete furnishing of the saints. And that's good. You think there's more going on there? Oh, there sure is. So I go back to my Strong's, or better yet, I go to my J.B. Smith, and I look up perfecting in the back here. Okay. Also small print that I'm no longer doing well with. And uh, I see perfecting guitartismos. I find out that the root word is actually several times in Scripture. So I go, to the, I go to the thing, and there's a chart. And in this chart, it tells me every way that this word is translated in the Bible. You understand that sometimes a Greek word is translated more than one way in English. For instance, agape is translated Love, but it's also translated charity. And that's true of this too. The root word for this is translated several different ways. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to see the other ways that this word, katartismos, uh, katartismos, if I got the accent right, katartismos, I'm going to see how else it's used, and that's going to help me understand what that word fully means. Okay. So let's do that. Go to Matthew 4.21. Matthew 4.21. We're talking about the perfecting of the saints. Matthew 4.21. I'm getting too ahead of myself here. Jesus encounters the disciples, and in particular, James and John. They've just come back from fishing. In Matthew 4.21, it says... And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Anybody want to guess what word in there is from that same Greek word? Mending. Well, what does mending mean? Mending means to repair or to reinforce. To repair or to reinforce. Okay. Now let's go to Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1. I love this kind of stuff. Because remember, Strong's just told us fully equipped. And that's sufficient. But if you start comparing Scripture with Scripture, and you let the Scripture be its own commentary, it will give you so much more if you're willing now here's the key if you're willing to put in the work why are so many christians superficial in their understanding of the bible because it's work that's why galatians 6 1 brethren if a man be overtaken in a fault you which are spiritual restore such an one spirit of meekness Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. 
Don't take a guess which word there. Restore. And the thing about that word is when you look at how it's used in other instances of Greek in that time period, they use that word a lot for restoring a bone, setting a broken bone. Okay? So we've got fully equipped, repair and reinforce, restoring a bone. Now go to Romans 9.22. This one's a little tougher. When Paul speaks of something called a vessel, he means a ship. He means a ship. Okay? Romans 9.22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? He's using the analogy of a ship that's been fitted. That word fitted is the word that we translate from this word. So it's talking about a ship that has been fully outfitted or prepared for a journey. Interesting. Fully prepared for a journey. Here's the last one. 1 Corinthians 1.10. 1 Corinthians 1.10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. What do you think there? If you say joined, you'd be partially right. Perfectly joined together. All three of those words come from that one Greek word. Perfectly joined together. What's that mean? A unified spirit. So, when we read that he gave some for the perfecting of the saints, we could say, okay, completely furnished, completely equipped, and we'd be fine with that. Or we could do the work and come away with the full meaning of one word. What does it mean? It means that a minister's job is to repair and reinforce struggling Christians, setting their spiritual broken bones through correction and restoration, equipping them for the journey ahead, and helping them maintain a unified spirit within the local church. One word. That's what happens when you compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, I'm fine with fully equipped. But isn't this so much more descriptive and tells us so much more? Yeah. Comparison. A huge, huge component of interpretation. Next. Yes. In all, in all candor, the book. The book shortcutted it for me. But I checked behind him on all four of those to make sure that he was accurate. And had I taken the probably couple of hours it would have took, I would have come to the same conclusions. But it would have been the Strong's Concordance and the J.B. Smith. I could have got all of those from those two resources. Now, the thing is, I can use, I can use the computer program and get it just like that, you know, if you know how to navigate it. All right. Um, so remember, I'm teaching the content of the book. Man, I don't want to sound, look at me, I'm super scholar or anything like this, but I've done that work many times. And you use, you use those resources, that Strong's Concordance and that J.B. Smith, and you can find out everything I just said. It, but it's a lot of work. It's, and, and there's, honestly, there's, you got to be careful that you can, man, it's never a waste of time to study Scripture, but you've got to ask the Lord 
to give you wisdom to know which words are most needed for your study in that moment. Because I've seen guys use a whole lot of time to talk about words that don't have what I call theological significance. It's kind of like the same people that say, now the nail that was in the top of the house, do you know what it's similar? Sometimes a nail is just a nail. You know, you can, you, can, you can waste a lot of time spiritualizing things that aren't meant to be spiritualized. But in this particular case, and, and he actually used a couple of others, a couple of other examples, um, like he used the word believe, and he used a, a, another, wasn't even a word, it was a concept. I chose this one, and uh, I found four things. He only found three, so woo um, but, uh But, yeah, those resources are what will get you there. Anybody else? I have no problem with questions. Yes? You just scratch your nose. Okay. That had been a surprise. If, yeah, I got a question. Okay. Let's look at culture. Culture. When you're looking at the culture behind the passage, you have two necessary components. And I'm going to give you those components in a second, but I'm going to tell you a story that the author uses. The author had friends in, in, in San Francisco, and this, they, were, they were a married couple. And this fella, what he did, he imported um, Asian things, and among those things he imported... Um, very expensive, what's called oriental lace. Really intricate, really well done lace. And uh, he was an expert on all these things, you know, Ming vases and all that kind of thing. And the writer went to see this, this couple when he was in the, the area. And they were going to go out and eat. And as they were going out, he noticed that there was this lace on a table by the front door. And he said, man, that's beautiful. And the guy who, who owned the home, he said, actually, it's garbage, and I've begged my wife to get rid of it. And he says, well, why is it garbage? He says, well, I'll show you when we get back. Okay. So they go out and eat. They come back, and he takes the lace off of the table and takes it back to a room where he does his work, and he lays it on a table that is shrouded in black, and then he shines a very bright light on top of it, and immediately all of the flaws and all of the things that would identify it as cheap work and knockoff immediately just come forward. It's kind of like if you go to a jeweler, a lot of times they'll lay jewelry on a dark background and put light on it. That's what culture does with the Scriptures. What you're doing is you're taking the text and you're laying it on a dark background and you're shining the light of the Holy Spirit on it to give you a full picture of what's going on. And so in that, in that vein, the two necessary components for understanding Scripture as it relates to culture is background and illumination. Background and illumination. And I'll tell you, an excellent example for this is the book of Ruth. If you want to fully appreciate what's going on in the book of Ruth, you've got to know the background. You've got to know the culture in which it takes place. Does anybody care to posit a guess of what verse in Ruth most clearly illuminates the background, the culture in which she lives? Hmm. Okay. Well, it's kind of a trick question. You would be right in that that would display the culture to which Ruth aspires. That's where she wants to go. We want to look at where she came from. And if you want to really see where she came from and where she finds herself when she goes with Naomi, you don't find that in the book of Ruth. You find it twice in the book of Judges. Twice in the book of Judges, Judges 17.6, Judges 21.25, you see this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. The book of Ruth is set 
in the time of the judges. That goes back to that comparing Scripture with Scripture. Okay? And what happens is, what happens is, you take the book of Ruth and you lay it on the background of the book of Judges and you see how awful a place the world is at that time. Israel is never at a lower point spiritually until you get to a divided kingdom and the wicked kings of the northern kingdom. Israel's never lower than in the book of Judges. It's bad. And when you read through the book of Judges, there's some horrible things going on. Horrible things. Not just morally, but just as far as your humanity. Terrible things going on in Israel during the time of the Judges. And so when you take Ruth and you view her against the background of the culture of Judges using the illumination of God's Holy Spirit, you have a much greater appreciation for how genuine she was and how brightly she shined. And then when you take into account, what's the book of Ruth a picture of? Our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, who like Boaz took a Gentile bride when he was not obligated to do so and raised her station immeasurably. It's all about Jesus. But you don't fully appreciate it until you see the dark background that it's on. And you know what? You don't fully appreciate your own salvation until you look at the background from which you came. Last one. Consultation. Oh, that bothers me. Consultatio in the Bible will always be its own best commentary. And if you go in my study, you see thousands of books there. And I'm thankful for them. But if all you have is this, you're going to be okay. Because all those books for their use are not inspired. They're not perfect. This one is. So if you can only have one book, may it not be Strong's Concordance. May it not be J.B. Smith's Concordance. May it be the Bible. Now, if you're smart, you get a Hebrew key, Greek keyword study Bible, and it's got a Strong's in the back of it, so you can have both. But if all you can have, have this. The Russians and the Chinese and all the other communist nations, they're not burning concordances. They're burning Bibles. Must be a reason. Because this is alive. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We understand the Bible's always its own best commentary, and we understand that you should never elevate anything above the Scripture and the Holy Spirit's teaching. There's certain guys that I like to study after. I like Warren Wearsby. In some things, I like John MacArthur. I like uh, I like John. I love John Phillips. I like J. Vernon McGee. There's one guy, and I disagree with him on about ninety percent of what he thinks about a lot of things. But it's hard to find a better writer on Romans than a guy named Douglas Moo. Eat the meat, spit out the bones, you know. None of them should have my trust like this book. Everything has to be filtered through the prism of God's Word. Every once in a while, J. Vernon McGee is wrong. John Phillips, who I, if, if, if you could only have one commentary set, I'd say New Testament, John Phillips, no question. Love him. And his whole book on the Song of Solomon is wrong. I love that guy. He's wrong. I hope. Otherwise, I'm wrong. So don't ever trust, you know, the Bible says don't put confidence in man. Okay, this is where our confidence is. But does that mean, and I, I could name you preachers right now, and you've probably heard of them, that they have taken the position, you come in my study, you'll see one book. Okay, I appreciate that. But I think I have biblical reason to have all the books in my library that I do. 
What do I have in my library? And maybe you should consider having in yours. And by the way, I can help you get copies of any of these things. I love it. I love finding stuff for people. I lo- and I love trying to find it on the cheap, too. I'm not going to lie. Man, if I, can, if I can find you a book, great. If I can find you a book for cheap, even better. As long as you don't mind them being used. You know, and if you want a brand new copy, not much I can do to help you with that. But if you don't mind there being some highlights and lines in it and maybe the dust jacket's gone, man, we can get something going. Probably 60% of my library is used books. You know. Things like concordances, like that, that Strong's Concordance, that ought to be in your library. How about this, a Bible dictionary. I don't know what this word means. Sweet. They make a book just for that. It's called a Bible dictionary. It'll define those terms for you. Okay. Uh, how about a Bible handbook? Now, what's a Bible handbook? That's uh, something like, um, uh, Wil- you ever heard of Wilmington's Guide to the Bible? He, he makes a, they made a smaller version of that called Wilmington's Bible Handbook. It takes you through every book of the Bible. This is who wrote it. This is when they wrote it. This is the theme. This is an outline. And it just gives you all the, the bones, the, 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 you know, the, the scaffolding of, of a book. Great thing to have. And an atlas. An atlas is helpful. Why? Because sometimes it's useful to know how far Jesus walked. You know, things like that. Commentaries. Once again, be careful. I have a few that I have complete sets, but most of my commentaries, I've picked up individual books on individual subjects and things like that because I don't want their whole commentary. You know, I might like what Moo has to say in Romans, but I don't want what he says on Galatians or something like that. You know, sermons. Y'all, get into the habit, if you're not already in it, of reading sermons and listening to sermons. And I'm not talking about mine either. I'm talking about, man, can I give you some names? And it takes, you got to work at it. How about G. Campbell Morgan? That guy got some great stuff. Um, Spurgeon's always good. Um, I've got a set by a guy named Alexander McLaren. Old guy, way back when. Good stuff. The Puritans. I would disagree theologically with the Puritans on a lot of things, but it's hard to beat some of their writings. And I got a whole Puritan section. Sermons. If you want something more recent, find 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 some of the old sermons of guys like Curtis Hudson. Let me give you a name, Jack Hudson. Jack Hudson. Um, guys, some of whom have stood behind this very pulpit. I think of uh, Billy Kelly. John R. Rice, people like that, sermons. And then study Bibles. There's some good study Bibles out there that can be very helpful in your study, and I'm happy to help you sort through that if you need help with that. You say, well, I mean, why why bother with all this other stuff? Two reasons. One, oh, man, I don't have that on there. Acts chapter 17, verse 28, Paul is on Mars Hill. He is preaching the gospel. He is lined up against all these philosophers and philosopher wannabes. And what does he do? Acts 17, 28. For in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said. How do we know that Paul used other resources? He quotes them. Paul is in the Mamertine prison in Rome. It's not going to be long before they cut his head off. He asked Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to bring him some things. He says, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee. And the books. Oh, he's talking about the Bible. No, he's not. Because then he says, but especially the parchments. That's the Bible. What are the books? Something other than the Bible. The greatest theologian to ever walk this planet used other resources. And if he did, maybe I should think about it too. You know. So next week, we're going to get back into coming to terms and figuring out the figurative. That's helpful, isn't it, to know when you take something literal and you take something figurative. You say, well, well you know, I, I'm a literalist. You always take the Bible literally. Not when it says not to take it literally. 
So how do we know the difference, figurative or literal, and then coming to terms? Well, we've already talked about terms, yeah, but you cannot overstate how important it is to know your terms and know what things mean. You just can't, and we'll get into that some next time.